Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This is a very special episode because the first time this story really has been told in English. It's a story that's pretty well known in France, a wartime story of heroism, of enlightened humanistic thinking, working with some of the most marginalised people in society, keeping them alive through the horrors of the Second World War. But it's not really known about in the English-speaking world. I'm very grateful to the guest today, Ben Platts Mills, for coming on and talking about it. Ben is an author, he's an artist, he's worked with survivors of brain injury, he's worked with groups who have suffered psychiatric disability. And he came across the story of Saint-Aubin Hospital. It bucked the trend in France, where hospitals for the mentally ill suffered something like 50% mortality during the Second World War, at the hands of the Vichy government and direct German occupation. This hospital, though, was different. Some enlightened people in leadership mobilised the staff, mobilised the patients, and managed to create enough food by foraging, keeping livestock. But it goes even further. This mountainous psychiatric hospital became a hub of the French resistance. Ammunition was stored there. It became a safe house for Jewish refugees, for freedom fighters, for intellectuals, for political prisoners. This psychiatric hospital actually became an island of sanity in a sea of madness. It is a really special story, this, everybody. I'm very grateful for Ben Platts-Mills coming on to talk about it. Enjoy. Ben, thanks very much for coming on the pod. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you. In the early to mid 20th century in France, what were some of the sort of popular responses towards psychiatric illness and disability? I mean, I guess they were common across Europe by that time. People with disabilities and psychiatric challenges, there was a long, already a long history of people being neglected and ostracised and cast out or tortured or starved to death if you're in the medieval period, right? That was standard operating. Even with the sort of scientific, you know, enlightenment psychiatry that came in in the 19th century, people were still being routinely imprisoned or mistreated. Eugenics, right? 1900 eugenics, a sort of pseudoscience <laughs> of eugenics was um, pretty common currency. The idea that these people were a threat to the population, to the species, 
widely, widely accepted across Europe and the United States. So by the time the war came, these large populations of people were imprisoned under already pretty desperate circumstances. They'd been, as one psychiatrist called it in, in 1979, being interviewed about the period, he said there was a pretty much a universal indifference to psychiatric patients. People didn't care. Their well-being was not centralised in any way. And then it's terrifying to think that then on top of that, if that's your starting position, then Europe descending into the sort of most extraordinary dislocation, the chasm of death, destruction, shortages, violence, hatreds, those people are going to find themselves even more marginalised in those kind of situations. Yeah. So already imprisoned, they were at the mercy of government policy around food supply. So when rationing came in, which everybody knew, everybody in France knew that the rationing system didn't supply enough food for a person to survive. It just wasn't enough. Everybody knew it. And they they worked around it, right? That's how the resistance operated, by workarounds. But people in these institutions didn't have access to those networks, right? If you're locked in a, on a ward and you've got a thousand people in this hospital and no effective way of getting food in and out, and it's more scrutinised, right, by the administration, if food is supplied in a much more official way, and there are no unofficial routes, you starve to death. And that's what happened. Incredibly high mortality rates. Of the 96 psychiatric hospitals in operation, many of them were losing up to half their patients by the end of the war. Just huge, huge numbers of dying people. And no one was witnessing it. There was nothing. It took another 40 years for this story to reach the wider public. It's astonishing. Tell me some of the challenges that psychiatric hospitals would have faced during the Second World War and German occupation. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I can quote you, if you like, from one of the psychiatrists working in France at the time. It's pretty bleak. It's not pleasant reading. This psychiatrist interviewed in 1979 described the situation as terrible. He said it was a terrible period at the hospital the food supplies we received were completely insufficient for feeding 3,000 people. I lived through scenes as terrible as those in the concentration camps. Patients were chewing off their own fingers. I mean, it was starvation. Ooh. And that was deliberate? Was it deliberate? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a really interesting and quite controversial question. So about 45,000 people died in psychiatric hospitals in France during the war. And when that sort of finally came to light, when those figures started coming out... A lot of people speculated that it was part of a deliberate policy kind of initiated by the Nazi government and the Vichy command. But subsequently, quite a lot of historical research has been done and it doesn't really seem to be borne out. No direct policy has ever been found, nothing in writing. But did it need to be deliberate? That's really the question. I'm sure the Nazis were perfectly happy to see this atrocity taking place. In fact, the first people they killed when they entered Poland were psychiatric patients. And for the first policies written into Nazi law were, you know, the first genocidal laws were around the sick and the disabled psychiatric patients. So it was definitely part of the plan, but in a way they didn't need to do it deliberately because these people were already imprisoned. Does that make sense? All they had to do is put rationing in place, make it impossible for these people to get fed. So... Deliberate? I don't know. <laughs> it's a very ambiguous situation. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that obviously gets the heart of the Holocaust doesn't have a neat paper trail in terms of the decisions by 
Himmler, Hitler. It is, I think, in their case, they left it deliberately obscure whilst definitely encouraging the murder, the atrocities in so many ways. Tell me about this hospital before the Second World War. Yeah, so it was in a similar position to a lot of psychiatric hospitals in France at the time. It was already desperately underfunded. There is a long, long history through the 1800s through to the early 20th century of these institutions being neglected and underfunded by government. It had about 550 patients at the start of the war. It had one psychiatrist. So it was originally a Catholic monastery and it was run by a combination of nuns and wardens. It had no real like modern sanitation. It didn't have decent plumbing, it had no heating. It was basically a medieval castle and patients were sleeping on straw, often in locked rooms or locked dormitories, sometimes sharing with animals in stables. <laughs> you know, it was pretty, pretty bleak already. And obviously the winters of 1940 and 41 were exceptionally cold. So as the war started and food supplies sort of dried up, there was the additional challenge of it being extremely cold. And it's in a mountainous region in the Lazare, so it's a pretty harsh place to live in the winter. Before the war, what was the hoped for outcomes for the people that would be sent there? Is this just basically imprisoning people that were mentally ill? There's some interesting quotes from the records. The person that was running it before the war, Paul Balvey, said that all he'd been told to do was make sure there were no escapes, no deaths and no pregnancies. That was it. It was just really, it was about containment and control. It was about keeping these people away from the rest of the community and preventing them from doing anything suspect. So it was pretty basic, yeah. It wasn't humanistic, if you want to say that. It wasn't humane. And war breaks out. Presumably, war just makes that situation worse. They would have lost staff to the army, I suppose. And as you say, food supplies dislocated and fuel and things. So the situation for most psychiatric hospitals was horrific. Almost all of them failed their, their patients. Almost all of them had incredibly high mortality rates. saint Alban was the exception due to some pretty radical thinking from some of the people working there. Let's talk about that radical thinking, but we should say that it got worse as well because more people were sent there. So it had about 550 at the start of the war. Hospitals were also being requisitioned across the country. So some of the big places were being requisitioned by the army and, and by the government. So that meant patients were displaced. So the population at Saint-Alban went up from 550 to about 800. So yeah, a big spike in a very short time in terms of the number of mouths to feed. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit talking about one very special French psychiatric hospital. More after this. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War. And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines of military history. I'm 
Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So what did the, well, there was a sort of doctor in charge. What did he do? How did he start to remedy this situation? I guess if you imagine living in the middle of the mountains in a pretty remote region, it's not like you can just sort of go ring up the local university because there isn't one. You know, like, where do you get staff from? It's not easy and everybody's caught up in the war. So he hit on the idea of going to the nearest refugee internment camp at Setfond, which is a little bit southwest of the hospital. It'd been set up by the government, the French government, to house refugees from Spain who were fleeing Franco's regime. And actually, Balvey himself was a bit doubtful. He was like, well, I guess I'll give it a go. There might be someone there who I can recruit, but it's full of reds and criminals. Those are his words. So I doubt I'll find anyone. And he found this guy called Francoise Tosquillez, a Catalan, who was absolutely a red. He'd been fighting with the communists and anti-fascists in Catalonia during the Spanish Civil War. But he was also a psychiatrist and he'd run clinics at the front line during the Civil War. When Balbe found him at the um, internment camp, he was running a clinic there, just like a shoestring off his own bat. He was running a psychiatric clinic for the refugees. So Balbe said, yeah, I guess you'll do. Can you come and help me? I've got 800 patients and I'm the only psychiatrist. But in the winter of 1940, Tosquillers arrived at Saint-Amand and uh, got stuck in. And, and what did he do? How did it go? I mean, he brought with him this very radical leftist attitude 
I think because he'd seen so much strife already and he'd seen fascism up front, right? He'd seen it at first hand. He'd seen what Franco was doing in Spain and that was horrific. I think he knew in a way perhaps that some people in France didn't know how bad things might get and that there wasn't time to kind of haver about ethics or, you know, practicalities. So he immediately said, look, forget everything you know. <laughs> like, forget psychiatry, in essence, is what he said. This is about survival. And they set about together, essentially doing whatever was necessary to secure food supplies. So they held like foraging classes with local people. They sent patients out into the woods, picking mushrooms, basically talked to the client and said, what do you know how to do? They already had farmland there. And of course, psychiatric patients, they're not just patients. They're people with lives. They've had backgrounds. They've grown up in the local area, right? So they have skills. And they straight away started putting people to work, doing what they were good at, whether that was farming or foraging, going out, begging and bartering, talking to the local villages. They really put everything into it in terms of dissolving this distinction between the patients and the staff because they knew that that was the only way they were going to keep everyone alive. And it worked. They had no deaths from starvation. That was astonishing. And whereas their equivalents, um, hospitals across the country, there was a... 50% mortality rate. Yeah, really shocking. And they started subverting the system. So under Tuskegee's guidance, they knew that there were special rations cards provided for TB patients. So the minute anyone started looking a bit malnourished, they diagnosed them with TB just straight away <laughs> to get the extra rations. You know, they, Tuskegee just didn't care. He was an anarchist, essentially. He was like, this is war. We're under occupation. The normal rules, the normal ethical principles cannot apply. We can't afford to apply them. Were they lucky in that were they in the heart of nature's bounty? I mean, was there deer in the woods and fish in the streams? Or could this have been done anyway? That's a great question. I mean, yes. I mean, the Lozère, you know, they are in the middle of, <laughs> as you say, nature's bounty. There are woods. Um, I couldn't speak to the number of deer. <laughs> in, in well, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I, don't, I don't have those yeah. numbers that I had. But I think, as I understand it, one advantage they had was that they could fly a little bit under the radar in terms of the Vichy administration because they were so remote. It wasn't like they had um, lots of kind of officers checking in and scrutinising their books or... So that I think the remote location helps in that way. Was there any psychiatric benefit? I mean, given they weren't really receiving any treatment before, are there reports that actually people, perhaps it was a way to recovery or to happiness, that there was all this purposefulness and outdoorsiness and foraging and all sorts of things? I'm showing my English early 21st century middle-class roots here <laughs> by just assuming that assuming that the answer to all anxiety and depression is to go out foraging. For a good walk, yeah. <laughs> I'm very of the moment. Really. Right. So apologies for that. No, no, I think there's, uh, I think there's some wisdom in that. If it works for you, Dad. <laughs> um, as far as I'm aware, one thing they weren't doing was maintaining, because of the sort of straightened times, they weren't maintaining like rigorous records using validated psychiatric scales to assess people's progress on a regular basis. So it's difficult to give you kind of like concrete evidence of the psychiatric impact. But one thing I would say is it's really worth watching. There's a really wonderful documentary by someone called Martine Derez. It's called Our Lucky Hours. It's a French film. She found this incredible archive footage in the hospital. She went to visit and just found it sitting there, this um, real tins of footage shot from the early 1940s through till the 1970s, 80s. And it shows there's black and white footage from the hospital at, at early times. And gradually as this work took hold, this kind of more communal, more humanistic work took hold, you can see this incredible population of like flourishing people 
They had shoe workshops, they had carpentry, they had massive kitchens, they had parties and dances and theatre. And it's this astonishing community of like rich cultural life. And the fascinating thing is you can't distinguish who's a patient from who's staff. It's very difficult to spot because actually the patients are just getting on with life. I don't know if you call that evidence. I don't know if it counts. You know, it depends on your perspective. But to me, this is reflected in the work I've done in community building and working with people with complex needs, which is that if you create a situation where you emphasize what people can do, what they can make, rather than what's making them sick, if you create opportunities for people to act as fully formed human beings, the emphasis shifts and there are always benefits. People don't stop experiencing psychosis. They don't stop experiencing the complex implications of brain injury or, you know, whatever the things they've been learning disability. Those things don't go away. But with time and with the right kind of support, people's lives do unquestionably improve. And it becomes something more relational, becomes collectively held. So this kind of intracyclic emphasis on, look, you are the sick person, that starts to move out of the frame. And what you start to see is people being able to take responsibility and being able to feel good about themselves. You know? <laughs> That's such a big deal. So important. So they survive and they even, dare we say, thrive. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because it starts to get involved actually in the course of the war. Yeah, so this is where it gets, to me, really fascinating and kind of like breathtaking. The idea that someone or that, that an institution would not only recruit its own client group to the work, which to me is like, yes, that's amazing. That's revolutionary and exciting and important. But they didn't stop there. They started opening the doors to, first of all, Jewish refugees. So a couple of people made it out of Germany and presented themselves. They were just there. And there's an interesting quote from Balve where he talks about his initial reservations. He's like, well, these people are not psychiatric patients. I feel uncomfortable about taking them in. And Tuskeyes' response was, well, we'll just diagnose them. It's fine. <laughs> Balve said it took him a while, a few days. You know, he had to think about this for a while. It took him a couple of days to get over his scruples. But he said, you know, he was right. Tuskeyes was right. And they chatted to them, the two refugees, and said, you know, what kind of diagnosis do you think would be most appropriate? And they set upon paranoia. So they started there. And again, what they noted was that the patient, the client group, started seeing a role for themselves. So Tuskeyes said he found patients going to the kitchens, making food and bringing it to the refugees independently, just their humanity was coming forward. So they started taking the refugees in. Then they had a change of staff. Balve left to go to another hospital and was replaced by a man called Lucien Bonafé. He was a psychiatrist, but had been also pretty active in the resistance. He was a pretty hardcore leftist and had armed militant contacts. And he was actually fleeing persecution, you know, fleeing arrest at that time. And he brought those contacts with him. And Tuskeyes, unsurprisingly, was immediately like, yeah, they could come. <laughs> yeah, there's a free ward. So it didn't take long before they were sheltering armed militants, partisans, and gun running. You know, they were hiding stuff and moving stuff for the resistance. So it's a psychiatric hospital, it's a refugee camp, and it's a hub for the resistance. So how did those different communities then mix. I mean, you've said a little bit about how the refugees were received, but suddenly you've got men of action, young men, potentially violent, um, quite a different cadre to those who are already there. How did that change the atmosphere? So one of the things that's talked about with Santa is the meetings. 
But I think it worked because there was already this kind of radically inclusive approach taking place. So they would talk about everything. Nothing was off the cards. There was no idea that the staff should sit in a room together and discuss the client group without them in the way that you might imagine in a medical setting might have, you know, kind of ward round or something. Everybody was already talking about everything all the time. And I think the resistance fighters just kind of joined in. They had a printing press at the hospital, so they started printing dissident material and distributing it and running leaflets and storing stuff. And I think the patients, as well as the staff and the resistance fighters and the refugees, were kind of all having the same conversation. I think there was a, a recognition that they were all being made vulnerable by Nazism, right? They were all kind of at the receiving end of this thing. They were all, they were all wanted dead, right? It was as simple as that. Every single person there was on the hit list for the Nazi regime. I imagine there would have been moments of like tension or fear or doubt about what was happening. But I think there was a unifying principle that superseded all of that. We have to get through this. We have to survive. And the only way we're going to do this is together. Interestingly, they also started having other people who were targeted by the Nazis, intellectuals, artists, poets, people like Paul Eloire who'd written a poem called Freedom or Liberté, which had been airdropped by British RAF across France as a way of encouraging the resistance, this poem, right? These beautiful leaflets. And so he had to go into hiding and he ended up here. So you have this incredible community of militants, intellectuals, artists, people with complex disabilities who are also becoming artists. So these visitors would encourage the patients in their art practices you get people like Auguste Forestier, who was already making things, but who Paul Eloi identified as a, you know, look, this guy's really talented. He bought some of his art. He then showed that to Pablo Picasso after the war. These kind of strange and fascinating kind of tendrils of influence move out. And you can see the influence of this, what's called, I guess, outsider art, what was in France called art brut, really began here. It began with this work in this hospital and it touched all parts of French culture eventually. So yeah, fascinating place. It is indescribably fascinating. And they survived the war today in terms of they never became the focus specifically of a, a kind of a you know a Nazi sweep or they went on sheltering people, it went on being a hotbed of resistance, and no one ever came knocking. As far as I'm aware, they got away with it. I've not come across anything that suggested they were ever specifically targeted. So they obviously did a really good job of keeping it hush-hush. And, you know, Paul Eloir stayed for a winter and then left and he was fine. He survived the war, carried on working. So they were really effective. Is it reasonably well-known about in France? Because it's just not a story told in the English-speaking world. Yeah, it has much more of a legacy in France. So someone who interned after the war, Jean Ouri, he went on to open a hospital in saint Alban's image, which is still running today. And the principles that these people developed at Saint-Alban and at Orhi's Hospital, some of the basic principles were rolled out across France in the sort of latter part of the 20th century under the name of sector psychiatry. This kind of broad humanistic principle was nationalised. Bits of it went on to kind of influence French intellectual culture really until the present day. This is what surprised me. I, when I came across it, I had never heard of it. It just hadn't touched my... My radar, I've been working in community building and, you know, working with people with psychiatric problems and disability for 16 years. No one had ever mentioned it. <laughs> it's astonishing. And I don't know, is that the French-English cultural divide? I don't know what, what is that? I don't know, because it's such an extraordinary story. And it was so relevant, particularly for my work, for what I was attempting, this kind of co-produced 
community-based solution to the problems. It was a bit late. I'd left by then, so <laughs> sadly, I'd left my work. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if some Hollywood producer comes knocking on your door, buddy, because it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? And um, it deserves to be very, very widely known. Right. Mm, I agree. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and starting that process off. Tell everyone the name of that documentary again, because it does sound really remarkable. You can search for it in English. The English title is Our Lucky Hours, and the director is Martin Derez. And that's what first put you on to yeah, really terrific film. Highly, highly recommend it. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Pleasure, thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.